the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 10, The Bird's 60th Anniversary, talking to Sean Chang of the Hill Place movie and TV blog. Alfred Hitchcock's horror film classic, The Birds, was released in March 1963. Sean Chang joins us today to discuss the making of the movie and its cast. Hello, Sean, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Jim. My pleasure. Sean, before we launch into the film itself, I want to start with some local geography. The mm-hmm. Birds was filmed in San Francisco, certainly the opening and in three locations 60 miles north of the city in West Sonoma County, namely Bodega Bay, the village of Bodega, and Valley Ford. And in fact, those three locations are largely unchanged since 1962 when the filming took place. This was the second time that Hitchcock came to Sonoma County to film, and his first movie was Shadow of a Doubt, filmed in Santa Rosa, the county seat, in 1943. We'll be discussing that film in July. And of course, the little hamlets of Bodega Bay, Bodega, and Valley Ford are near and dear to my heart because they're only four or five miles away from my home in Sonoma. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So, Sean, take it away. Albert Hitchcock's The Birds, I mean, it's a very well-known movie. I'm probably not sharing information that people who are knowledgeable are not already aware of. But it's a movie that has taken me years to really, truly appreciate in the proper manner. When I was first introduced to The Birds as a child back in the 1980s, I was looking at it purely from the point of view of it being a horror film and for its visual and visceral thrills that it provided. I remember watching it for the first time. I liked it. But the first time I watched it, I thought it was a bit slow because it had all this character development and I was anxious to get to the bird attacks. But but as I've gotten older, I've really grown to appreciate the characters and the performances in the film because I think that's what makes it truly a special motion picture. I think it's a brilliant film and I think it's the last true masterpiece of Alfred Hitchcock's career. The main thing I really like about it is the central character of Melanie Daniels played by Tippi Hedren. I think that's a really interesting and complex character and one that remains contemporary on a lot of different levels. You know what character Melanie Daniels reminds me of a lot, uh, Jim, from earlier in Hitchcock's career? Who? She reminds me of the Lisa Fremont character that Grace Kelly played in uh-huh. Rear Window. And let, and let me explain why, because both characters are these beautiful, glamorous socialites. But in the course of their respective movies, they each show qualities of character and grit and determination that really you know, makes you realize that despite the, the, the rich and tony background that they come from, they're not shallow. They've got levels of depth and unexpected courage from them that really makes the audience like their characters. The Melanie Daniels character in The Birds, when we first meet her in the film, she's in a bird shop to think, uh, to pick up a, a minor bird for her aunt. Right. And then she meets the leading man of the story, Rod Taylor, as San Francisco criminal defense attorney Mitch Brenner. And, you know, she kind of fools him into thinking, 
or she pretends or she's trying to fool him into thinking she works at the bird store and he plays along with it but he's just setting her up to humiliate her if you might remember the opening scene you know and and it that's what sets up sets the plot in motion because then she buys a pair of lovebirds because he, he told her that his little sister is having a birthday party. So she takes the birds to Bodega Bay to, to basically drop off as, at his house as almost as a prank. But it pulls her further and further into the, his life, the life of his mother and the life of his little sister, but also the life of his ex-girlfriend, Annie Hayworth, who's uh, played by Suzanne Flechette. And that character of Annie Hayworth is the cool teacher in Bodega Bay. So the movie is really intricately structured because he and the screenwriter, Evan Hunter, came up with the idea of starting it off as almost kind of like a Rock Hudson, Doris Day romantic comedy. Yes. And then, you know, kind of pulling the rug out from everybody by making it a true horror film. The movie was based very loosely on a Daphne du Maurier story, which was set in rural England. That short story really bears no resemblance to the final film, except for the fact that they both involve bird attacks. But I think what really holds the film together are the characterizations. And like I said, Melanie Daniels is a great character in Tippi Hedren, making her official film debut. And when I say official, a a decade earlier, as a young model, she'd had a a part in a film. But this is her basically really making her debut to filmgoers. And she's playing the female lead. And I think she does an exemplary job. Let's come back to the very opening scene. You see Tippi Hedren, Melanie Daniels, crossing Mm -hmm. Powell Street at the intersection of Geary, which of course is Union Square. To the right is the St. Francis Hotel, which dominates Mm -hmm. Union Square. That's in fact where the cast actually stayed. They didn't stay up in up in Sonoma County. They stayed in San Francisco. They stayed at the the St. Francis Hotel. So you see her crossing the street with Mm-hmm. The San Francisco Hotel in the background. She turns left. She gets a, a cat call, uh, some whistles uh, from a couple of boys as she turns left on Powell. That pet shop, of course, never existed. It didn't exist in that spot for sure. It's it's interesting as just before she she turns to acknowledge the the cat calls, and just as she turns back to look towards the pet store, who walks out of the pet store with two little, I think they're white Cairn Terriers on a tandem leash, but Alfred Hitchcock in his of course, his cameo role that he loved to do in all of in all of his films. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and when you mentioned that the pet shop, it, it is not really located there. I mean, that scene opens with an actual location shot of San Francisco, but then it's cutting to basically Universal Studios where, the, you know, the pet store and the exterior is located at. So, but it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that she gets a kind of a wolf whistle from a little boy that passes by because the legend of Tippi Hedren, her backstory is that she was a, a model in New York who did commercials and, and print ads and she was already a, a mother. She was a mother of the future movie star Melanie Griffith and she was by this point divorced and she had moved back to California and she had done a commercial for a diet drink called Sago which has her walking down a street and then you know a, a child in a car basically whistles at her and Alfred Hitchcock had seen that commercial one morning while watching the Today Show and he was quite taken with her and wanted to find out who was the actress in that commercial basically you know put out his feelers to have his representatives you know find out who that model was and brought her in to interview and screen test at Universal and put her under personal contract she 
thought at the time that all of this activity about putting her under contract was so that he had an actress available who could easily do guest roles on his TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But she was quite surprised when she found out that he was actually getting her ready to uh, play the play the lead in the birds the thing about it is is that i'm not going to go too much into it people can go read about it is that hitchcock had a wonderful working relationship years earlier with grace kelly and if grace kelly had not become princess grace of monaco and married prince renier he probably would have continued making every movie with grace kelly but she got married and so he was always looking for another another leading lady that could match grace kelly in quality prior to tippy hedron he had put a wonderful brilliant actress named vera miles under contract and Vera Miles made two films with him, The Wrong Man and Psycho, where she has an excellent part as Janet Lee's sister searching for, for her in the second half of the film. But by the time Tippi Hedren had come along, I think the Vera Miles contract had run out. And Vera Miles had established herself by then as an excellent character actress, you know, making films for people like John Ford and doing tons of television. And so with Tippi Hedren, he had another opportunity to try to develop and mold a brand new movie star. So Tippi takes it upon herself after this flirtatious interlude with, with Rod Taylor at, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the pet shop. She takes it upon herself to get to Lovebirds and to yes. take, them, take them up to his house in Bodega Bay. We then switch to the scenic Sonoma Coast, the windy coast along Pacific Coast Highway, which is spectacular, always has been spectacular. And you see Tippy speeding along the windy roads next to the Pacific Ocean on PCH. Of course, you hear the wheels squealing in the background on her 1955 Aston Martin. And again, that overview scene of the windy, tortuous road along the Pacific Coast Highway, the Pacific Ocean is just spectacular. He really catches, he sets the scene for the, the very special kind of place that West Sonoma County is, starting with that wonderful coast. She then gets to Bodega Bay, and what happens then, Sean? Well, she gets to Bodega Bay, and she's trying to track down where Mitch Brenner lives, and also wants to know the uh, the first name of his little sister so that she can write a card to attach to the birdcage. And she ends up being directed to go ask the local school teacher, Annie Hayworth, played by Suzanne Plachette. And the moment they meet, and when Annie Hayworth realizes that uh, she's in town, you know, to bring the birds to Kathy, she really realizes that Melanie Daniels is really more interested in Kathy's older brother, Mitch. So this mild rivalry develops between the two women, but what's really refreshing about it is that they're only rivals in name only because as the movie progresses and develops, what I really like about them, and I even wrote a blog entry about it on my blog, you can find it on the Hill Place blog called The Hitchcock Brunette. Both the Melanie character and the Annie Hayworth character are extremely polite and civil and very sincere with each other. They have a wonderful scene later in the film where they're talking about Annie's former relationship with with Mitch, and Annie really pours her heart out, and Melanie listens to it with sympathy standing and it's a really great scene because they seem to understand each other's circumstances and situation and melanie clearly feels compassion for this woman who has given up her life in san francisco to go follow mitch and be close to him even though she knows the relationship is over suzanne Plachette, people might may or may not remember her probably don't remember her but people who are older will definitely remember her in the 70s as uh, bob newhart's wife on the bob newhart show right. but in the 19 but in the 1960s suzanne Plachette was a leading lady in motion pictures but not great motion pictures and that's kind of her problem she did not star in great movies she starred in 
decent films or mediocre films. And by far, The Birds was the best film she ever appeared in. And even though it's not the lead, she gives a magnificent performance. I mean, she really brings a lot of depth, nuance, compassion, sympathy to the character of Annie Hayworth. And I think because he does such an exemplary job with these uh, two characters, it really goes against the stereotype of of Hitchcock being this misogynist who doesn't like actors or actresses, does not like women. He victimizes or tortures women, which I think is malarkey and nonsense. But, you know, we can we can discuss that in a different podcast. But I think in this movie, he really portrays these these female characters with a lot of nuance. I mean, it's, it's a great performance. She has a line that I love. Can I tell you what it is? Sure. When she's trying to explain to Melanie, I mean, when I say she, I mean Suzanne Plachette and Annie Hayworth. She tries to explain to Melanie the reasons why she has moved to Bodega Bay, even though her relationship with Mitch is over. She basically says something to the effect of, you see, I still like Mitch an awful lot, and I never want to lose that friendship, ever. And when I hear that line, I always think to myself, I think everybody in the world can probably relate to that line. For Everybody in the world probably had somebody at, that, at some point in their life that they were either in love with or infatuated with that they really have a difficult time letting go of, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't want to say goodbye to that person. So I think that line is actually one of the most poignant movie lines of all time. Now, the school where she is the schoolmistress, that, mm-hmm. that in fact was the Potter School, and it was a school until 1962. Of course, the filming took place of the birds. It took place in 1962. So mm-hmm. it, that was actually a school. It still stands to this day. The house where she lived next door to the school that was uh, was apparently put together and just kind of thrown up for the film itself as you face the school to the right of the school you'll see a white clapboard church it looks like something out of new england that church was famously photographed by ansel adams in 1954 and if you go if you look on the internet and look at look up ansel adams work you'll see that church and that's the church and the school of course are located in the hamlet of Bodega, not Bodega Bay. Bodega Bay is about five miles north of the hamlet of Bodega. Bodega is actually where the school is located, is actually inland. There's no water there. And at once mm-hmm. in one scene when you see the kids running out of the school and they're running down the road with Tippy and with uh, Suzanne Plochette, you see them running towards the water that water doesn't exist. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist in that place. That's just the magic of Hollywood. In any case, let's let's come back to Bodega Bay itself. Well, I was going to ask you, because you have a lot of connection to Bodega Bay, and you've, you've been there at times, I think, for events that commemorated different anniversaries of the birds. What does the community think about that film? Or would you be able to you know, speak to that? Oh, absolutely. Let's see. The 50th anniversary in 2013 was celebrated right there in the village of Bodega and also the town of Bodega Bay. In Bodega, there was actually a tippy-hedron Alfred Hitchcock lookalike contest. So, <laughs> so, so you every, won the Hitchcock lookalike contest, I, right? No, thank God yeah. I didn't. Thank God I didn't. But yeah. in front of in front of the general store, there was actually an old aluminum telephone booth with a figure of uh, of Alfred Hitchcock standing in front of it. The little church that I referred to, it's St. Teresa of Avila, that was open to the public. I was a docent at the church. And who arrived at the church to check it out? None other than 
Tippy Hedren. And so mm. she reminisced back to to the day when when they were there filming on location. There's a famous photograph of Tippy Hedren in front of the uh, in front of the school sitting in Alfred mm-hmm. Hitchcock's director's chair and Alfred Hitchcock is facing her with his back to the school. Again, that's a a famous black and white photograph of the two of them together with the church in the background. But she confirmed that he actually, he attended mass there at the church. Tippy used to come up to Bodega Bay every year on the Labor Day weekend. And she would she would sign autograph copies, studio studio uh, black and white photographs of herself. She'd sit at the bar at the Tides restaurant, autographing these photographs of herself for twenty five bucks a piece, and those proceeds would go to her animal sanctuary down in Southern California. She hasn't been back to uh, Bodega Bodega Bay, to my knowledge, anyway, for the last ten years. But she was a very strong supporter and retained her her links to Bodega and Bodega Bay over the years. And as I said, the last time she visited was 2013. So my sense is even for her, this film was a, was a very special film that remained very vivid in her own imagination. I would think so because primarily she's known for the birds and Marnie, more for the birds than Marnie because Marnie is not considered the classic that the birds is. Yes. Uh, Marnie's, Marnie's more of a niche cult movie that some people seem to love and more often than not people despise. I am in the latter category. I despise Marnie, but you know we're not going to get into that in this discussion because we're going to focus on the birds. But in the birds, she created an iconic character and she has several iconic scenes and images that you know have put her in pop culture i mean in one movie she starred in one classic and you know it made her a well-remembered legendary star forever i mean so for her to come back and be part of the bodega bay community whenever it seemed appropriate it seems like she's honoring the fact that the birds is very important in her life so she gets to bodega bay tippy she gets to bodega bay she goes into the general store she's where the brenners live they live across yeah. the bay just in the shadow of bodega head but the brenners live on the other side of the bay so she rents a boat she climbs into the boat in her stiletto Leto heels and her ranch mink coat, <laughs> carrying, <laughs> carrying the lovebirds, which of course she she wants to deliver surreptitiously to the house. So tell us what happens as she approaches in the in the little motorboat as she approaches the Brenner homestead on the other side of Bodega Bay. You know, she gets to the Brenner's home. She sneaks in. She leaves the you know the, the bird, the bird kit, the birds, and also the note. And then she slips back onto the boat, and she you know kind of like takes the the motorboat out a little bit, a little bit of a ways. And she waits to see if Mitch notices it. And he goes inside the house, and he runs back out, wondering you know who left it. And then he take, gets out some binoculars, and he spots her, and and he smiles, can you know kind of like he, he likes the challenge that she's you know kind of like that she's offering him. And then he jumps in his car, and he you know kind of drives down to the Tides Rest because she's on her way back there and then that's when she you know is hit by a seagull kind of swoops down and hits her in the head all of this stuff like i said leading up to that moment when the seagull hits her on the head it's all kind of like a, a spoof of in a silly way she doesn't seem to have any sort of direction or you know, depth to her that's all that's we're all making assumptions about her based on the fact that she's going to do this silly thing on a whim by delivering this this pair of birds to, to somebody that she barely knows but it really pulls her into the drama of the story once once the storyline really gets underway, when she really gets to know Mitch and gets to know his mother, played by Jessica Tandy, and gets to know his little sister, you know, Kathy. 
she becomes very fond of Kathy and she becomes very uncomfortable by the fact that Lydia, Mitch's mother, seems very cold to her. In a short amount of time, you know, she becomes pulled into the drama of Mitch Brenner's life and the women, you know, involved in his life, like such as Suzanne Plachette that I talked about earlier. And that's when I think her character really, you know, starts to show the depths that I described earlier. She's not going to, you know, various different moments in the story, Jim, where she could have gotten back in her car and driven back to San Francisco and avoided getting further involved in both Mitch's family or the drama of what's happening with the birds. But she doesn't. She sticks around. She tries to save the children and children several times, both at the birthday party and and all that really is jim is movies where women are now you know written and directed to behave like men where they get into uh, fights they fire machine guns they basically beat up men who are like three times larger than they are which you know really isn't any kind of character development at all but i would make the case that the character of melanie daniels is a genuinely strong woman because she perseveres she keeps going she's trying to she's trying to unravel what this this mystery is in terms of why the birds are behaving this way and also she's gotten involved in the lives of Mitch and his family and she wants to help them. So I think that's what really makes the story compelling. Do you know what's another thing I find compelling about the movie, Jim? What's that? I am not a fan, and I'm going to make this really clear right now. An actress I am not a fan of, never have been, is Jessica Tandy. When she had a resurgence in the 1980s and people treated Jessica Tandy, you know, as if she's the most, you know, the grand dame of acting, the most lauded actress. (laughs) And I think it's because by that point, Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis were not as active as they used to be. So I think everybody, both Hollywood and in audiences, the public and movie audiences were looking for or an older actress that they could look up to and admire, and Jessica Tandy filled that bill. Now that Jessica Tandy's been gone for decades, I mean, who watches, aside from the birds, who watches a Jessica Tandy movie these days? Nobody. I mean, later on when Maggie Smith and Judy Dench became popular in their later years, I realized, ah, that's what everyone was trying to make Jessica Tandy into in the 80s, but it felt empty and phony. Now we have two genuine stars, Maggie Smith and Judy Dench, that, that the public lauds. And Helen Mirren, Helen Mirren, I yes. want to add that, mm-hmm. you know, um, at the public all odds. But it, I think with Jessica Tandy, it was always forced back in the 80s. I mean, I'm not a fan of Jessica Tandy. I recognize her talent, but in terms of her appeal, I think it's very limited. Now, I'm I'm setting all this up to say that I think she is absolutely magnificent in The Birds playing Lydia Brenner. I think it may be her best film work. I mean, she may have won the Oscar maybe 25 or 26 years later for Driving Miss Daisy, but this movie is actually her best film performance. It's a very, very complicated woman uh, who is not sympathetic at all when you first meet her. You would agree with me, right, Jim? Yeah. You know? yeah. But as it progresses, you really realize that she's frightened, she's afraid of being left alone, she's a widow. It's not that she necessarily doesn't want Mitch to find a romantic interest that will make him happy. It's just she's afraid of what it means in terms of being left behind and, and with nobody to look after her. And as the movie progresses, the vulnerability, the depths that Jessica Tandy brings to that role is really remarkable. And I think the real the part that I find really quite moving is, is that by the end of the film, when um, the Melanie character has been badly injured by the birds and they've, they've got to basically risk their lives to get her to, to get her to a hospital so she can get medical treatment. 
that Jessica Tandy character really shows genuine concern uh, for Melanie's character, um, something that earlier in the story you wouldn't have thought possible. But, but at the end, the two characters seem to really have bonded. And that's I find that just genuinely moving. And I'm saying this to you, I'm getting choked up, okay? so <laughs> Let's come back to Melanie. She's been attacked by the seagull uh, as she's pulling her motorboat into the quayside. And of course, then Rod Taylor... Mitch is there to help her. There are two bird attack incidents, number one, that night at the dinner, and number two, the next day at Kathy's party. Talk about those two incidents, because attack of the birds, is it's a gradual buildup, you know, starting with that, that one attack by the seagull when she's out on the motorboat, and then that evening... At, at the Brenner home, and then the next day oh, at the I, birthday party. Oh, there was not one at the Brenner home. What happened was they just had a simple dinner, and then she went back to Suzanne Plachette's house, and then they had that dialogue scene that I described earlier where uh, both women, Annie Hayworth and Melanie Daniels, talk about Mitch, and then what happens is a seagull hits the front door of, of Annie's house and right. kills itself. It's an omen, and you know, I think Annie says, like, oh, poor thing, it probably got lost in the dark, and then you know, Melanie says, but it's a full moon out. So that's an omen, but the next morning not the next morning next afternoon at kathy's birthday party that's when things really get started because the birds really start to attack the kids it's a it's a suspenseful moment it's an exciting moment it's frightening because none of it makes any sense one of the key things about the birds uh, that we haven't gotten into is the fact that i mean this is a 60 year old movie so i don't think we're giving away any spoilers but hitchcock never explains the nature of why the birds are attacking i think that's a brilliant brilliant device in the story it it leaves one to interpret what it is that's causing this to happen and people have had some interpretations saying that the birds reflect the kind of the tension in the characters lives and it's you know they're affected by the fact that there's all this tension brewing i mean who knows what it's all about but that mystery that that hangs over the movie is what i think makes this a very compelling story another theory as regards why the birds are attacking In 1962-1963, Rachel Carson published her famous book, The Silent Spring, which of course Mm -hmm. was like the opening, if you will, of the environmental movement. And in Mm -hmm. The Silent Spring, she talked about the the awful pollution that was taking place in throughout America, throughout the world, industrial pollution, and how it was changing the course of nature, in a sense. So that was certainly a topical book. It was a topical thought at the time. And who knows whether Hitchcock kind of blended that theme into, into the film. It may have resonated you can hear me you can my reaction just now basically <laughs> it says it all i kind of doubt that because hitchcock god bless him was not a didactic filmmaker i mean he was not political in his content or his intent with his movies i think he was a, a storyteller and i think if there was any theme to his films it was more psychology and emotion not politics and so i think it's possible that maybe there might have been an environmental theme, but I don't think and anyone who watches any frame of the birds, I don't think that even, you know, subliminally that was his intention. But it's possible that you, know, you can interpret it that way. They did a sequel years later. Um, it, it was a cable movie called The Birds 2 and Universal did it, you know, in an air on Showtime. It was so bad the director didn't even put his name on it. Um, there was there was there was a pseudonym. There was a pseudonym that the director's guild uses called Alan Smithy. It was credited to Alan Smithy because it didn't turn out well. And Tippy Hedren is in that sequel that but doesn't play in Melanie Daniels. She plays a different character. And that movie tried to have a more a more conscious 
environmental theme. And by adding that, it really destroys the whole mystery of the original birds. But one thing I, we haven't talked about is Rod Taylor as Mitch. I, yes. he, first of all, Rod Taylor is one of our most underrated movie stars. He had a really great run of films. Um, starting from the late 50s into the early 70s. He was originally from Australia and came to Hollywood. And he and he really adopted an excellent speaking voice where you couldn't really tell where he was from. You know, he, he spoke like an American, but occasionally you'll, in interviews, uh, Jim, you'll notice... It, you know, slips, that, that it his, slips out. It slips out, <laughs> you know, especially when he does interviews with people from Australia. Then yeah. suddenly it all comes out. But he was really a brilliant actor who was handsome and good looking. He was good at comedy and drama. And in, in the character of Mitch... Mitch starts off being rather arrogant and condescending to Melanie, which makes which which is very interesting in terms of why she's so interested in him. I guess, you know, I mean, there is that theory that if somebody isn't showing much interest in you, usually make someone more interested, uh, the other person more interested than if the person is like very attentive and showering with affection and the other person basically goes, oh no, I don't need this. He, he makes Mitch a very substantial character in the long run who cares deeply about his family, who you sense is growing to care about Melanie and you sense still has feelings for Annie as well and also has courage and integrity. So I think, you know, as a hero in the story, he, you know, he, he has a very strong presence. That, then I touched upon this, uh, the aspect of the romance. I think the romance is done in a very understated way in the movie between Mitch and Melanie. They're probably falling for each other, but I think it's more that they've been thrown together in this weird circumstance that they only have each other to lean on. The Hitchcock never forces this drippy love angle into the movie in a way that, that feels contrived. Yeah. You would agree with me on that one. I agree. I, th I think it's, uh... It's it's subtle, but let's come it's back subtle. to let's come back to the the scene at the Tides, the Tides mm -hmm. restaurant. A little bit of background: that original Tides restaurant existed till 1968, and it actually burnt down. For anybody who mm -hmm. watches the film, you know there is that fire sequence in the uh, in the film, but the original restaurant actually burnt down in 1968. It was replaced with a much larger complex uh, shopping, dining, bar complex which is still known as the Tides. So for anyone who visits Bodega Bay today, if you're looking for that original little dinky Tides restaurant, it's not the original one anymore. It's much larger, but it's, it's still called the Tides. So tell us about that. Tell us about that scene. We have that British ornithologist, that lady who comes in, who gives us a quick lesson in ornithology and the different kind of birds, etc. Tell us about that. And you can see you can see that the fear and the tension of other patrons in the restaurant as they as they're listening to her and fear they've heard about these bird attacks. Talk, talk to us about that scene in the restaurant. Oh, it's a wonderful scene because uh, the birds have just attacked the kids. And Melanie's at the restaurant and she's on the phone to her father, I think, in San Francisco, trying to explain what's going on. And, you know, Mitch is dealing with the with the sheriff and the people in the restaurant are overhearing and slowly learning what is happening. And uh, the ornithologist is trying to say, like, oh, there's no way this could possibly happen, et cetera, et cetera. But it really becomes an interesting scene because... It's like the the characters in the restaurant become almost a Greek chorus. The yes. characters are almost commenting on the situation. And you've got people who, like the ornithologist, who believe that it's not possible for the birds to attack. And then you've got people who are starting to become quietly panicked and alarmed by this and want to get the heck out of Bodega Bay, like that mother with the two kids. Yes, I think it's a brilliant scene, actually. And that, that's kind of the point I'm making is 
this is a very character-driven story. And in one scene, the supporting characters, some of whom just appear in that scene, yes. they, they make a very vivid impression and they add to the fabric of the overall movie. I love that scene. And, it, and in the typical movie now, I don't think we would have a scene like that because someone would say that it stops the action cold while you have characters talking. But I don't think you know that's the case here. I think it's really you know giving the audience a moment to breathe and to try to you know make sense as to what's going on. I've seen things written by very philistine callow young writers who deride the birds they think it's camp and they think the special effects are horrible if they are listening to this i just want to tell them that i think that you're morons uh, <laughs> and 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 empty and pathetic to have that point of view how do you really feel sean <laughs> oh no no there's one in particular i don't even remember her name but i remember her making a comment saying uh -huh. it's a it's a campy horror film with bad special effects i can't even remember her name but wherever she is i you know i just good luck in life but the point I'm making is that people who really love cinema, and you know, you know, and, and when I say young people, not all young people think that way. Young people who are just caught up in reality shows and Marvel movies, and that's that's their frame of reference in life. But I think the thing is, is that having that scene in the birds really, really makes this um, not just an entertaining film, but it also makes it a really thoughtful film that really, you know, resonates with the audience. It, it, it's a great scene, but then, you know, it then it leads into another bird attack that is actually one of the most terrifying scenes in the movie. You know, where the birds attack, and remember that scene where the um, it causes like um, the birds attack this gas station attendant. Yes, and the gas and, and the gas is know. running all over the ground, and it catches fire. And and, and that poor man is lighting a cigarette, and then basically he, he he's too late, and it, and, then and the he was he was part of the Greek exactly. crowd. He was sitting he at was the bar. The Greek, exactly. I mean, and and so that whole sequence is great, but also it leads to Melanie Daniels running outside, and the birds are attacking, and then she finds herself trapped in the in the phone booth and and just the image of her trapped in the phone booth there's like kind of like a like a shot an overhead shot of her trapped and you really feel the tension and claustrophobia no i mean the movie is filled with really great images later on after that is when they're going back to pick up her car and they find out annie's been killed you, you remember that scene uh, first of all it's it's a terrifying scene because they're looking for kathy mitch's little sister Th they don't know where she is they see that annie is dead in front of the school then finally they see kathy in the house screaming behind a window and then after they get Kathy out of the house we have Rod Taylor gallant to the last take off his jacket and cover the body of Annie Suzanne Plachette who's lying there and made sure that her face was covered so that Kathy wouldn't have to see that exactly but also there, there's also a moment there that also again again shows the depth of the Melanie character because you know when they finally find Kathy and they're going to leave she says to Mitch oh please Mitch don't just leave her there don't leave her there like that you know and so it's it's very interesting because her rival has been killed and yet Melanie is in grief over it and shows respect and dignity to Annie, a mm -hmm. woman that she's only known for about 24 hours, if at, if at that, you know? And that's what's so interesting is the levels of humanity this, you know, these characters show for each other. I, I've read people say, I've read things people have written saying that the characters are unsympathetic. They might be, but I think it's a character, as the movie progresses, you really grow to care about them. And mm -hmm. of course, once they get Kathy, they go back to Brenner's house and that yes. leads to the finale. I do want to take the time to mention that Veronica Cartwright played uh, Kathy, and she is a British-born American actress who started out as an actor, actress you know, as a child and then grew into a grown-up actress in films like Alien and The Right Stuff and uh -huh. became a brilliant character actress who has a very, very intense quality as a grown 
grown up, but as a young actress, as a child, there's a, a kindness and an intelligence and a sweetness to Kathy so that she doesn't become like a whiny brat. Would you agree with me on that one? I would you know? agree. I would agree. She's in a sense, she's, she's sort of old beyond her, her years, but in a good sense, in a good, she's, yes. she's mature for her age. Not precocious. He's no. not precocious. Mm -hmm. But what, what we were going to say about, say something, I cut you off. But just coming back, they're holed up in the house now. We have Mitch, his mother, his sister, Kathy, and Tippy holed up in the house. They've shut the, the shutters on the windows. They've bolted the door, etc. And then the bird attack begins. Tell us about the bird attack viewed from the audience's point of view. And tell us from behind the scenes what Tippy and Rod Taylor, what they actually experienced in dealing with those birds, because there were real live birds, ravens and seagulls and sparrows that were being used with bird trainers on the scene. And for anyone who's who's seen, as, as I see them all the time at my house up there in Sonoma, those gigantic ravens, they're big birds. They've got gigantic black beaks and so they were ha so tippy and rod were actually face to face and dealing with those live birds not mechanical uh, in some cases they were mechanical birds but in most other cases particularly in that closing scene they were real live birds well, I think you're referring to the fact that when she goes upstairs into yes. the attic, it was a sequence that took a, about five days to film where she was real birds with bird handlers with, you know, kind of holding the birds at the end of the gloves. They were kind of like shoving them at, in her direction so that, you know, it, it, this was not like, um, you know, something that was, you know, special effects. This was basically her genuinely reacting to it, potentially being physically harmed by it. There, it's, I think there may have been one of the birds may have almost like you know, scratched her near her eye. Right. And this went on. This went on for about a week. And by the time, but she got physically and emotionally exhausted by the end of that week. And you know, Hitchcock has been, you know, heavily criticized for uh, putting her through the ringer like that. And it, so, so in that sense, it's made the film, you know, topical and controversial to this day in terms of the morality or the ethics of a director in terms of what they you know put an actor through in order to you know to get that shot but certainly the, the final result is a brilliant piece of cinema and filmmaking and storytelling the thing that resonates with me isn't so much that final attic attack it's really earlier in the film you know in that finale when they're all in the living room together and they hear the birds out you know outside and you don't see the birds. You just hear the birds. Yes. And and also, um, we have not noted, there is no music score. So all they're hearing are the sound effects of the birds screeching and, you know, kind of like, you know, trying to get, you know, trying to get in and stuff. And the different close-ups, these penetrating close-ups that Hitchcock has of the actors reacting to it. I, I always remember it's like, it's like Tippy is just almost backing away. It's almost like he's clutching the back of the couch or something like that. Yes. You know, it's just, it's almost like the, like the characters are reacting in physical and visceral ways, not even realizing what they're doing because you know they're, they're so terrified by what's happening. And I think it's that thing about what you don't see is more frightening than what you do see. And Hitchcock really, really plays upon that to, to great effect. But after, but after the Melanie character has been injured, suddenly everybody realizes they've got to get out get the heck out of there and get her to safety. Um, and that leads to the ultimate, finale where Mitch has to get um, the car from the garage you know put the roof on it it's a convertible and um, get everyone from the house 
into the car for safety. Um, and what are your thoughts about that finale? And I'll give you my thoughts. Well, it's, it's terrifying that he has to go out there, get the car, put the roof up, bring the car back to the house. And he's being surveilled by these thousands of birds who are, who've kind of stop the attack for the moment but who are watching him and you have the sense of are they going to pounce at any minute and if they did he would be toast because there, yeah. there's hundreds of them if not thousands of them and and he gives a very good performance and he's wary he's frightened he's strong but so he goes back in the house and he he gets he gets his mother and his sister and uh, and tippy brings them out and and tippy you really you see the terror in her and she's bandaged up, etc. And as she goes out and she sees those birds, she sees the birds a mess there. Just the few steps from the from the porch of the house to the car, she's terrified and she pulls back. She doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to leave. She's so terrified of the birds. I, right till the very last minute, you have that sense of uh, fear and revulsion and impending doom. That was my sense. There's a couple of things about that uh, that that final scene, and, I, and there's also something that happened in an earlier scene. I want to jump back to and tie into the ending. Is the movie ends on a ambiguous, uncertain note? They just get in yes. the car and they drive away, and it simply ends. I have actually always found that ending, even though it's ambiguous, I actually am hopeful for the characters. I don't have a bad, ominous feeling that they don't make it. I feel like they do make it. Maybe I'm just being too much of an optimist. But I think the reason why that there's, you know, that there's some hope to these characters is, like I mentioned earlier, in the back seat, Lydia and Melanie's characters seem to have found some common ground, and she's comforting Melanie's character. And Melanie, who earlier talked about the fact that she was abandoned by her mother, seems to have found in Lydia, you know, a maternal figure that she's been seeking all her life. And also, more importantly, in the front seat, Mitch allows Kathy to bring the lovebirds, and she says, "Like, can I bring the lovebirds? They haven't harmed anybody, mm-hmm. you know. And indeed, they have not harmed anybody. And so she brings the lovebirds with them." And because the lovebirds haven't harmed anybody, it gives you that sense that not all the birds are crazy in the world, okay? And that they're that they're moving towards a hopeful future. If they can somehow survive the day, they have kind of created a new family unit that can probably you know bring you know basically bring them you know a happy future if they can somehow survive this uh, what the, the immediate tragedy, the immediate situation that they're you know, that they're you know, trapped in at the moment. One of the things I wanted to mention and I forgot to mention earlier is a scene at the birthday party where she and Mitch are, you know, by themselves. And she has this scene where, you know, he kind of he kind of teases her because of the fact that she was a wild socialite and that she fell into you know, a fountain in Rome. Right. And she talks about she talks about the fact that she has several jobs that one day of the week, she one or two days of the week, she works at the traveler's aid at the airport. Right. Another day of the week, she basically is taking a, a class up at Berkeley a linguistic class or something like that. And then another day of the week, she is kind of like hosts a charity luncheon where they try to raise money to help a young Korean boy go through school. And then she just basically explains that that summer in Rome, she kind of lost herself. But when she came back, she wanted to find some focus to her life. And and so when you hear that, you realize that this is somebody who realizes that she is living a shallow life and she's trying to find some structure and some depth to it. But she still has a sense of humor because he goes, you know, he asks her this line about what about Fridays? Yes, Fridays they're free. <laughs> and then she goes, I even go to I even go to uh, you know was it pet stores or you know bird stores on Fridays, you know. And so so she still got a sense of humor. I mean that's I mean the reason I'm kind of reciting all these lines and explaining these things to listeners, I don't want 
listeners to just think of this as just a pure horror film. I mean, it's a story of loneliness. It's a story of of obsession in some cases, like the Annie Hayworth character is still obsessed with Mitch, but not in a dangerous way, just has not let go of the fact that that relationship is over. And it's also a story of possessiveness in terms of Lydia and how she you know, regards her son. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot going on that in that picture. That's why the bird scene, I think, is, it remains a classic. There's a lot of different ways for people to interpret that film. Some people can listen to what I'm talking about and completely disagree. And they're, they're not wrong either. Sean, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts on the birds in the 60th anniversary year of the film? It's one of my favorite pictures. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's certainly Hitchcock's last truly great film. And I hope if people are listening to this and have never watched The Birds, I really hope that they give it a chance and that they find as much as much richness to it and enjoyment out of it that the rest of us have. And I'm going to make a prediction that 60 years from now, when it's you know, the 120th anniversary, or even you know 40 years from now, the 100th anniversary, there's probably going to be another person making a podcast about the movie, talking about this quaint movie from 1963 I've discovered, but really still intrigues me after. <laughs> all these years so that's my prediction i think classics like that are timeless they still resonate and speak to us you know decades after after they were made well sean of course next month july we will be staying in sonoma county when you'll be reviewing shadow of a doubt which was hitchcock's 1943 film set in santa rosa so next month stay tuned listeners because we're going to still be in sonoma county Sean, once again, thank you, as always. Very to-the-point comments and uh, great insights on this uh, 60th anniversary of The Birds. Oh, well, you're welcome, Jim. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost thinking that the listeners is probably saying to themselves, are they turning this into an exclusive Alfred Hitchcock movie podcast? <laughs> and I'm just going to say, don't worry, we're never doing Marty. <laughs> okay. And for our listeners... Today's episode is number 415. The San Francisco Experience can be heard on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total, with a listener audience in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Mm-hmm.